Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another episode of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I've been interviewing fascinating and talented people from all walks of life for the past 20 years as an unscripted television producer and before that as a small town sports reporter. Each episode, I talk to extraordinary individuals working in documentaries, nonfiction TV, true crime, game shows, and much more. If you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe, download, and rate the show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. Follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. All right, let's get started. Today, my guest is a Peabody and Emmy Award-winning director, producer, who Variety recognized as one of 2017's top documentary filmmakers to watch and was featured in Doc NYC's 2019 40 Under 40. She is also the founder of Idle Wild Films, a film production company that focuses on making media with a message, intimately examining today's most urgent social issues through cinema. Please welcome Erica Cohn. Erica, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Steve. Your most recent film, Belly of the Beast, you're you're showing it now. You're you're taking it out on the festival tour. Thank God, you know, you're able to like get in front of people and show this incredible film. The New York Times, it's a critic's pick from the New York Times, is a Peabody Award nominee. I want to just kind of set it up for the audience, um, for anybody who doesn't know about Belly of the Beast. When an unlikely duo discovers a pattern of illegal sterilizations in women's prisons, they wage a near impossible battle against the Department of Corrections. Filmed over seven years, unbelievable, seven years, with extraordinary access and intimate accounts from currently and formerly incarcerated people, Belly of the Beast exposes modern-day eugenics and reproductive injustice in California prisons. Erica, how did you come to find this story that you take on in Belly of the Beast? Well, Steve, I have to say... It was seven years of filming, but it's been 11 years of making this film from start to finish. So over a decade ago, a mutual friend introduced me to attorney Cynthia Chandler, who's one of our one of the unlikely duo uh, people who, who you just mentioned or one half of the unlikely duo. And I was so incredibly inspired by her work. She was the first attorney in California to get someone someone out of prison under compassionate release. And she had co-founded this organization called Justice Now, which was the only organization in the country that had board members who were currently incarcerated, really informing strategy and informing policy from the inside out, as opposed to the outside in, which is how so many organizations in the prison reform kind of prison abolition space work. And they had a campaign called the Let Our Families Have a Future campaign, which essentially exposed the multiple ways that prisons destroy the basic fundamental human right to family. Of course, one of the most heinous being the illegal sterilizations, primarily targeting women of color. And, you know, Steve, immediately that screamed eugenics. As a Jewish woman, the phrase never again was always profoundly in the back of my mind. 
And when I learned about this different kind of genocide that was happening, more generally speaking, through mass incarceration, and more specifically through forced sterilization behind bars, I knew that I wanted to get involved some way, somehow. And initially, that was as a volunteer. Cynthia invited me into the organization where I started actually out editing campaign videos about the history of eugenics and how modern day eugenics was going on inside our prison system. And from there, I became a volunteer legal advocate, providing direct services for over 150 people inside California's women's prisons. And from that work in collaboration with folks inside began a project that would ultimately become Belly of the Beast. And kind of in the initial inception of this idea, it was really to chronicle the incredible human rights work that was happening inside prison, peer to peer, and how that information was funneled out through this underground network of activists, because of course the prison wouldn't want this information getting out. And the more and more we, in collaboration, started figuring out how we would film this, it just expanded and blew up. And a couple of years into the process, I had the opportunity to meet the other half of the unlikely duo you mentioned, Kelly Dillon, who's our main protagonist in the film. And she, I had heard about her powerful activism through all my work inside prisons. She herself was sterilized at the age of 24 while incarcerated at CCWF, the Central California Women's Facility, which I should say is the largest women's prison in the world. And at the time I met her, she was working in Los Angeles as an incredible community interventionist that she is, doing domestic violence prevention work and gang intervention work. And in that moment, she wasn't interested in telling her story, but was very interested in participating in the film kind of behind the scenes as a creative advisor. So we began collaborating. And a couple of years after that, the Center for Investigative Reporting took on this issue and released their very controversial findings about the tubal ligations that were happening during labor and delivery. Essentially, people on the operating table in the middle of labor and delivery were asked to sign consent forms, fundamentally giving up their right to have children and not aware that this was going on. So the Center for Investigative Reporting released their findings. And for the first time, this became a national conversation. There was potential for legislation, there was potential for litigation, and a potential for survivors to see real justice. And that was the moment that Kelly got called back in. The movement really needed her to testify on behalf of so many people who otherwise would be unable to testify. And that was the moment that Kelly and I decided that we would start filming her journey leading up to the point where she testified and ultimately beyond. And the more and more we filmed Steve, it became so abundantly clear that the film really needed to center around her relationship with Cynthia Chandler and Kelly being the initial catalyst to begin this investigation in the first place. If it hadn't been for Kelly's courage to figure out not only what happened to her, but others, and launch an investigation to not only figure out what happened to her, but others, and hold the Department of Corrections accountable, you and I wouldn't be here today having this conversation. There wouldn't have been a film. There wouldn't have been the Center for Investigative Reporting's work. 
I mean, none of this would have even happened. So it really goes back to Kelly's initial discovery. That's really incredible. I think it's really fascinating that this project didn't start with you just going, oh, I hear this amazing story or I meet this person. And then you dive in and before you know it, you're getting access and you start filming. This sounds like it started with you just being an activist, just being somebody who wants to get involved. Tell me about the importance of you being passionate just about this movement, just about this issue. And that turn to being like, okay, maybe now I can make this film and maybe was there a crucial moment? It's interesting because Cynthia describes it as at the time that we met, I was a baby filmmaker. I hadn't made in football. We trust. I hadn't made the judge, you know, I had made short films and I had associate produced a PBS series, but I really wasn't the filmmaker that I am now. And so I don't think, I mean, there's no way that I would have gotten access. There's absolutely no way that Cynthia and Kelly and the other activists, Courtney Hooks, who is featured in the film, would have trusted me if I wasn't immersed and embedded in this movement. And also, I wouldn't have been able to make this film just understanding the complexities of these issues. And I would not, this film had to be made from day one in collaboration with folks inside. And that meant making major creative decisions in collaboration and understanding the barriers of communication and the challenges in creating a project with folks who are incarcerated. I would have no understanding of that had I not actually been doing the legal advocacy work. Do you feel like that's a lesson for other filmmakers? I think it depends on the kind of film and the kind of filmmaker you are. I mean, personally, for me as a filmmaker, I'm really inspired to create character-driven narratives Um, about women, films about resilience and courage and perseverance and power, injustice and justice. And I think that I'm motivated to tell underrepresented stories about people on the margins with fullness fullness of complexity in really unconventional and unexpected and innovative ways. And I think what's unique about my work is that I bring a level of authenticity and collaboration to my work, working alongside communities who are directly impacted by what my films are shining a light on. And so that's just who I am as a filmmaker. I'm an immersive filmmaker. And I don't think that every film requires this level of immersion. I mean, this I will say, Steve, this was the hardest film that I will have ever made probably in my lifetime. And there are numerous reasons for that. And I think that there's, you know, our our film industry is really changing perspectives about what it means to work alongside film participants. I mean, we've moved away from the term film subject in certain situations. But when I started this project, there was a lot of misunderstanding and scrutiny of this project because I was so immersed in the subject. I, that... Cynthia and Kelly and Courtney who were involved in the creative process thereby weren't making the film objective and me being immersed in this with complexity of relationships where Cynthia was my supervisor and I was working with Courtney and she was my supervisor and Kelly was my colleague on the film you know that there was a lack of objectivity and I couldn't be able to even uncover something so controversial as this when I was enmeshed in the subject And thankfully, our industry has shifted its perspective on that because this film couldn't have been told any other way. 
when you have a film like this, which is social justice driven, or there, there's a, an injustice and you're telling a story about how to fix this, you know, you're taking on the system like this. It's, you know, you have some filmmakers who try to take that objective look at the, at the system and present a side of here's how it happened and what can we do as a filmmaker did you have a POV that you were going in from the get go or did you, you know, because it was kind it was an ongoing story. Like you said, it was an immersive story you were following and it was changing. Were you playing it by ear a little bit and kind of juking and jiving as the story changed? Yeah, absolutely. I think that I had to be incredibly flexible with this story. And I also needed to surround myself with an incredible team who could help offer that perspective. Because I think if this was up to me, this would have been a six hour film because I was so in love with everything <laughs> and worked with fabulous editors. But there, you're absolutely right, Steve. I mean, the first, the first kind of initial inception of the idea as we described pivoted when I met Kelly, you know, and the Center for Investigative Reporting kind of released their findings. And all of a sudden the Center for Investigative Reporting became, you know, a part of the film. Corey Johnson, the reporter there became a character. And then, you know, as, as the story kind of unfolded, it became clear that not only was the film changing, but also our impact goals and what we wanted to happen as a result of the film coming out. You know, prior to 2014, when legislation passed in California rendering sterilization, quote, illegal, I say, quote, illegal, because it was already illegal. So it was just a, a, a sunshine statute, as they say, to highlight the already present illegality of forced sterilization, um, or sterilization for the purpose of birth control and uh, California's women's prisons. So the initial goal was to end the sterilization abuse and get justice for the survivors. Well, we theoretically ended the sterilization abuse, even though there's questions about whether it's still continuing but no justice was given to the survivors as a result of that legislation. So then the goal became, how do we ensure justice? And part of that was reparations. And when we talked about wanting to get reparations with this film, you know, a decade ago, people thought that we were absolutely insane. There's no way that that could be humanly possible, but we did it. Reparations just passed in California a few months ago, providing compensation for those illegally sterilized uh, historically, during the historic eugenics period in California, when California sterilized over 20,000 people, and then those who were recently sterilized in California's women's prisons, as well as providing notification to those who were sterilized who still to this day don't know. As a filmmaker, to have been a part of causing change that these women are now getting just what the best form of justice you can, you can hope for, how does that make you feel? It's so interesting, Steve, because I think once when reparations passed a few months ago, it was this overwhelming feeling of, of happiness, of joy, but also a heaviness because the work, we knew that the work was not done. It was kind of like almost we had been working so hard to get to that point that we hadn't even thought about what we would do to celebrate. And so we kind of like all quickly threw together some sort of like Zoom celebration so that everyone who was involved in the campaign could take a moment to just say like, it happened, it really happened. But it's still ongoing because we are working 
on a weekly basis with the Victims Compensation Board to ensure that the rollout of the application process for compensation is just and is trauma-informed and that we are doing incredible outreach to organizations and people inside and trying to find all the potential survivors to let them know about this. So I think that the real celebration will come after the compensation has rolled out and we know that it has been done in a just and trauma-informed way. Access is obviously crucial for any investigative documentary like this. And for you, it was everything. Talk a little bit about how you got that access, specifically depositions and documents, just being able to work with the California prison system. Like, how'd you do it? Oh, this is a long answer because I could tackle this from so many different directions. And this is a really fun question. From a cinematic perspective, we didn't have access to the prisons. And so it was really important that we accurately depicted the world of imprisonment in a way that wouldn't do further harm. I mean, when we think oftentimes about imprisonment, you know, and our depictions of prison, you know, for so many people, prisons are so far out of sight, you know, out of our consciousness, they're placed in locations that are far from our physical reach. We are rarely granted access to worlds behind bars that aren't dramatized or sensationalized, or in the case of women's prisons, hypersexualized. And so I really wanted to reimagine how we visualize imprisonment using imagery that really contrasts confinement and freedom and uses imagery that evokes memory and passage of time, which are so resonant for folks who are inside. And then also place the viewer in these vulnerable, uncomfortable spaces, like what it would feel like to be handcuffed to a gurney, being wheeled into a surgical operating room, what it would feel like to be naked with your legs dangling from an exam room table, waiting to be seen by the doctor, employed by the prison, where your daily existence is threatened by force. And so we created this visual landscape. We chose to recreate that shoot it like a fiction film using the Utah Tax Incentive Program over six days in a medical simulation center, working jail and a dilapidated jail that we had incredible production and set designers who recreated it to look like California's women's prisons. And, you know, tried to create a visual landscape that really conjured the notion of consent and would consent even be possible within this coercive environment. In addition to that, the, the kind of when I talk about collaboration with folks inside, I think it's important to understand that like every major creative decision was made in collaboration with folks inside. So that was, you know, how people's stories were going to be visualized because we didn't have access to film with them inside. Um, it was the process of consent, how people wanted to be referred to in the credits, whether they actually wanted to be in the credits, if what they said over you know many years was still something that they wanted to say on the record and up to the very last moment when we were picture locking the film and doing the credits it was a process of asking again and this is how this is exactly what you say and this is exactly how it's being visualized and it was also you know who will be the musical voice of the film and everyone inside asked you have 
for Mary J. Blige. You have to get Mary J. Blige. So it became a challenge. Okay, well, like, how do we fulfill that request? How do we make that happen? And we worked with the incredible music supervisor, Tracy McKnight, to reach out to Mary J. Blige with a rough cut. And at that moment, we actually didn't have a finished film, didn't have an ending to the film, and had this kind of like incredible synergistic serendipitous timing where as Mary J. Blige was crafting the, the song that would lead, we would leave audiences with, the reparations movement really got traction. And so Mary J. Blige and DJ Camper and Nova Wave worked alongside our team to create this beautiful ending that gives hope and inspiration, but still does not forget these heinous crimes. Gotta love Mary J. Gotta love her. Heinous crimes, that doesn't even start to uh, summarize what forced sterilizations are. I think when you watch any film like this, you hear a story like this, the first question that pops into any person who has half a heart, their mind goes, how? Like, who's the monster? Who are the monsters who are doing this? That's such a good question, Steve, because it is so within us to want to label one person, one villain, and especially in cinema, right? You want to have that, that villain. But how do you put a face on systemic racism? How do you put a face on white supremacy? It is not one bad actor. It is not one bad apple. This is so deeply entrenched. When you look at also the layers of approval that is that requires this kind of procedure to happen, you have the, an individual nurse, a prison doctor, the chief, chief medical officer. Then you actually have the consent obtained by the outside contracted doctor, because I think it's important to note that these procedures didn't take place at the prison. They, people were actually sent to outside contracted medical facilities where you have additional layers of consent, doctor, outside contracted doctors consent to that. Then every procedure has to be reimbursed by the state. But the federal government actually was brought in to oversee all healthcare in California's prisons because the healthcare was so deplorable. Judge Selton Henderson put California into the federal receivership in 2005. So you actually have federal approval required for these procedures. So the layers and layers and layers, when you peel them back, it's very clear how systemic this is. Was that tough for you as a filmmaker to kind of try and, you know, you want, it's much easier if you can go, oh, it's this guy or, you know, like, oh, we're going to tell the story about this evil villain. Was that tough for you to try and tell a story about a system that's gone awry, a system that's turned on these women? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the one of the important kind of parts of this film is the historical context, how we got here today, which takes us through the history of eugenics in California and how Nazi Germany actually came to California to learn from our eugenics policies to take them back, including forced sterilization and how California was the most heinous offender in the eugenics program in, in the history of the United States, sterilizing over 20,000 people. And when you go through this history and how post, you know, World War II, post the Holocaust, you know, eugenics sort of goes underground, as Dorothy Roberts describes, and it became targeted, you know, targeted uh, mostly women of color through birth control, welfare policy. And it's not when you understand this history and historical backdrop, it's not so shocking 
that this found its way into the prison system. It's unfortunate that it's not sh it's not shocking and it's not surprising. And I think that a lot of people when they watch this film are like, wow, I didn't know the history of eugenics in this country or wow, I didn't realize that this was still ongoing. But I think even more broadly, when we think about eugenics and we talk about eugenics now today, I mean, this is now a word that we use a part of our daily lexicon as opposed to 10 years ago when I was first starting this project. It's very clear eugenics is alive and well. And it's not just through forced sterilization. It's through policing. It's through our immigration detention system. It's through our healthcare system. Who has access to healthcare during the pandemic? All of these different facets of eugenics are being illuminated. And so I really hope that people leave the theater or leave their screens after watching Belly of the Beast, having a clear indication that it's not just this one aspect or it's not just one person. And going back to your initial question, Steve, about how you visually depict that, I think one of the most powerful moments in the film is the social media montage and how, how people are talking about general societal per perception of those who are incarcerated. And that's really illuminating that it's, uh, that it's a lot of people and it's public and um, there's a conversation about uh, modern day eugenics happening online in front of our very eyes. And we actually saw that come to life after the film was released at the Human Rights Watch Film Festival last year. Fox News did a great review of the film, a glowing review of the film. But in the comments, the comments were even more heinous than the ones that you see in the film. When you do a story like this, as a, you know, as a storyteller, you have to be extremely sensitive with all of your interview subjects. You're dealing with something that's happened to these women that's unbelievably heinous. Talk a little bit about your approach when it, whether it was interviewing or just research, everything that you're doing had to be of the utmost sensitivity. Yeah. Kelly Dillon talks a lot about our process as being trauma informed and not being rushed. So what that meant is I, if I had an interview scheduled and someone said, you know, I'm not ready. It didn't matter. It meant that stories were told in pieces. It meant that I was continually asking for consent prior to the interview, during the interview, after the interview, up until the very moment that we were picture locking and exploring all potential ramifications that may come from that, you know, including the potential for retaliation for folks who are still inside. And we can never guarantee that retaliation won't happen. We cannot guarantee protection for people after telling these stories. And so it was an, a process of understanding all of that backdrop and all of the factors, the shame and the trauma associated with having someone's reproductive capacity torn away from them, taken away for life their right to have a family taken from them and all the ramifications associated with that. This film could not have been rushed. This film needed to take its time and it needed to be done in a way that was really guided and directed by those who were directly impacted. And so, you know, folks who stories ultimately made the film were involved in how their stories were visually depicted as well. Seven years, right? And you're talking about really giving people time if they're not ready to do an interview or having to push shoots, that sort of thing. How did you kind of manage a schedule, whether you're in post, you're in production, you're 
doing research. I mean, you're dealing with the, the legal system. You're dealing with so many facets of telling a story like this, and it's ongoing. There is no, you didn't even know when there was going to be an end date. How did you manage your time and how did you manage telling this crazy and this huge of a story over the course of seven years? It's, it's a really good question. I think that the constant people, constant collaborators on this project were always Cynthia, Kelly, me, and Courtney. And at a lot of times I didn't have funding to, to collaborate with other people. And so I think it's also important to note that I was doing legal advocacy work at the same time the film was actually being filmed. And so I wore two, wore two hats as a, as a filmmaker and as a legal advocate and, you know, experienced from multiple different angles, the layers of secrecy and privacy that these institutions hide behind, which makes it incredibly difficult to uncover these abuses of power and state-sponsored violence. And as a legal advocate, you know, you can't have a ticking clock on something because for example, I remember one particular case where I was requesting someone's medical records and it took two years because every time the Department of Corrections would send paperwork back, it would be the wrong date, it would be blank pieces of paper, or they would say that they don't actually have those records when we knew in fact they had them. So whether it was trying to obtain someone's medical records for legal purposes, or trying to do fact checking to ensure that this film would be bulletproof by the time that it came out, the reporting process and kind of the fact checking and legal advocacy, medical advocacy part of this was just, pretty much unbelievable and could not be rushed. And then you take the fundraising aspect of this. And in the beginning of the Belly of the Beast kind of filmmaking process, putting together anything for this film, little pieces of funding, scrapping together little pieces of funding was incredibly difficult because either funders didn't believe this was actually happening, despite the fact that I had hundreds of testimonials saying that this was actually going on, or some funders didn't think that this was a worthwhile cause. We all know that this, if this is happening to one person, it's happening to enough. And so, or, you know, even some fun funders thought that this wasn't a topic worthwhile from the perspective of when we put people in prison, we, we put them in and throw the key away. They lose their human rights and, you know, wondering maybe if we should be sterilizing them so they don't contribute to the, you know, on and on, all the things that you see in the film, I experienced from the making of the film and the fundraising process. So it really took a long time to get this film off the ground and running with the momentum to be able to bring on a full, fully fleshed out team. And then in the edit, I mean, it was, the edit was a challenging process because as you mentioned earlier, access, I had been trying for years to find someone who worked at the prison, ideally a nurse or several nurses who would be willing to speak on camera, on the record about what was going on inside. And I had spoken to dozens of nurses off the record because no one wanted to speak on camera for the fear of retaliation, even though they were no longer working at the prison. And I think, Steve, when we think about prisons as retaliatory environments, we often think about them for those who are housed, inside, but not those who work or are employed by them. 
And people were afraid of losing their pensions. People were afraid of uh, being retaliated against in other ways. And so finally, we had already submitted to Sundance. We had already had like a very strong, what we thought was a fine cut, ready to finish the film. And I was able to get the two nurses that you see on camera and we restructured the film around it. And then I was fact checking all the details of Kelly's case and had been speaking with her former attorneys. No one remembered anything about her case file. They put me in touch with an attorney who had made a merger with the previous law firm to the new law firm. That attorney had no idea where the files are. So we began this investigation, thank God, with someone at this new firm who had remembered Kelly's case. I was like, you know, I'll, I'll help you, whatever I can do. Finally, we get these files, which are in some random storage unit in the middle of nowhere in California. And in those files is a DVD of the deposition of Kelly when she was so young in her 20s for her sterilization trial. And we, again, restructured the entire film around it. So I think, Steve, the film, this, this, the universe had other plans for this film that just needed to take the time it needed to take. And it was a whole process of letting go of every kind of filmmaking window, every kind of filmmaking distribution and funding and rollout strategy you possibly could have because it just had, had to take the time it needed to take. That is a wild story. And that is awesome. This is a big, big picture question, but like, what is your takeaway from having studied the California women's system for so long and kind of being stonewalled? What do you take away about where we are with mass incarceration and abuse and the way we treat prisoners? I believe in a safe, compassionate world without prisons. I don't believe that reforming the prison system is possible. I think that Belly of the Beast is a perfect example of how reform efforts don't work. You have laws that exist that people find loopholes around, then you have to create more laws to ensure that people's basic human rights, which were already a right to begin with, are followed. Then there's retaliation, then you have to create another law to protect people after the retaliation. For example, after SB 1135 passed, rendering sterilization for the purpose of birth control more illegal, people were experiencing the denial of any reproductive health care. And so then further legislation describes how health care is a basic fundamental right, but it already was. So it's not possible to reform the system. And so I personally am a, a prison abolitionist and I, you know, work from that perspective. What was the biggest challenge for you in making this film? I think challenges surrounding access actually provided a creative opportunity for us to really push the boundaries of how imprisonment is depicted. I think that challenges surrounding funding actually required us to get very strategic and perhaps provided the opportunity for us to take the time that we needed to take on this. And I think that the horrendous comments that we received from funders, from you know, potential viewers throughout the process really highlighted what we needed to overcome in reaching audiences. So there were so many, there were so many challenges in the process. And I think that communication with folks inside is often not 
talked about enough as a challenge. I mean, we talk about the film taking, you know, 11 years to be made from start to finish. We had to allow the proper time to be able to write to folks inside and to be able to get the their mail back because it's not like, you know, all phone calls are monitored. There's not, there's no privacy. Mail is, is sometimes denied and held. You know, these are, these are communication barriers were definitely a challenge in the making of this, but something that we held so near and dear and ensured that, you know, from day, from day one, that this film would, you know, in making a film in collaboration with folks inside, that meant that the film had to be accessible, meant that the only way that the film could be accessible was through a PBS broadcast. So we knew that from early on, we couldn't take funding from other sources because that would prevent us from having the film on PBS and kind of holding that directive near and dear was a beautiful opportunity for collaboration. I think, unfortunately, an unprecedented collaboration. It shouldn't be that way, but also, you know, there, if we're honest, it, it had a lot of challenges. Well, you said something in there about negative comments, whether it was from people you were looking for funding for, or just in general, before the film came out, before kind of the idea of, of the ster- four sterilizations hit the press and everything like that. I want to kind of touch on that because yes, I can imagine someone maybe thinking that this wasn't the most marketable film or maybe, oh, it's not going to be a moneymaker. I can understand that, but what kind of like horrible person is going to like give you bad vibes or give you a bad comment about a film where you're really trying to help people. You're really trying to right some wrongs. That's a really good question. I think that it really illuminated how systemic the legacy of white supremacy is in this country and how our prison system functions as a form of reproductive oppression and genocide in itself. When you lock up people throughout their reproductive capacity years with increasingly long sentences, you are thereby denying someone's right to a family. You are ripping apart families and you are denying them the ability to have a family. Also, I will say that, you know, now almost 12 years ago, the the conversations around prison abolition and policing and eugenics and white supremacy are very different than the conversations I was having then. All right. I want to ask you quickly about two of your other amazing feature documentaries. Okay. The Judge and In Football We Trust as a former sports reporter um, (laughs) in football we trust is right up my alley. And I think it's interesting. It's great. It shows your kind of your flexibility and to do three so different documentaries, you know, as as a director. Tell me a little bit about the judge, because this was, you know, again, talk about access and talk about kind of being bold as a filmmaker that that is (laughs) evidently, you know, you're, you're going into a world that is very foreign, literally very foreign and unfamiliar and not, not easy. Right. Yeah, it was actually amazing. I was on shooting hiatus with In Football We Trust in 2012. And I think it's important to say I started In Football We Trust the same year that I started Belly of the Beast. <laughs> and um, I, at this point in 2012, I had absolutely no desire to take on another project. 
And I had received a Rotary ambassadorial scholarship to teach film in Israel-Palestine and continue my postgraduate research in Islamic feminism. And I was very much looking forward to the hiatus from shooting. I was like, I'm gonna focus on grants and fundraising and proposal writings while I'm there. Well, I had a serendipitous encounter with Judge Hulud that changed that entire game plan. And when Judge Khulud invited me into her courtroom after we met at a Islamic reform meeting that was happening at the Palestinian Authority headquarters in Ramallah, the moment that I walked into her courtroom was the moment that I knew it had to be a film. You know, as you see, you see in the film, she's part judge, part attorney, part marital therapist, and the cases that she sees are not so dissimilar from the cases that we see in our family court system in the US. And the, what's so unique about it is she's adjudicating 40 to 60 cases a day and is, I mean, unbelievably kind of larger than life captivating in the way that she functions in her courtroom. I mean, it's absolutely remarkable. And at the end of that first day, I said, you know, Judge Khulud, I think that your story can really challenge rapidly increasing global Islamophobia and really provide a unique lens on the importance of strong Palestinian women supporting other Palestinian women and strong Muslim women, which images we don't really get to see very often. And she said, you know, that's amazing, Erica, because I've been waiting for someone to come along. And we started this beautiful collaboration. Judge Khulud is, is still a dear friend. We talk very frequently. We just talked this morning and very, very, very beautiful journey that film was, though not without its challenges for sure as well. Shifting to In Football We Trust. You won an Emmy Award uh, for In Football We Trust. And, you know, I'm a sucker for the, you know, emotional football, high school football, you know, story. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. But um, I'm curious, you know, you, you, you picked um, a, a group of players uh, from the Polynesian community in Salt Lake city, you know, uh, tell me a little bit about kind of why those players, why those families and kind of what struck you about that story that made you kind of want to feature them as a documentary. Well, I was living and working in Los Angeles at the time, and my mentor, Geraldine Dreyfus, who I'd known from a very young age, called me and said, you know, I think you should come back to Salt Lake and explore this story that's right in your backyard. And she connected me with Tony Vinuku, my partner on this film, who had been exploring telling the story about, you know, Pacific Islanders and football. And what struck me immediately was how the football seed is planted so young and the pressure that young Pacific Islander men feel to use football as a way for social mobility and economic mobility for their families to literally lift their families up. The pressure that they feel is so profound. By the time that they are in junior high, football is a profession. It is not a sport, it is not a game. And you see all kinds of movement in Salt Lake and the surrounding areas to recruit certain players when they are in little league, when they are eight, nine, 10 years old to start relocating to certain districts so that they can play for certain high schools. Um, it's The pressure is just too much. And so Tony and I, found the incredible film participants that we found because they were interested in talking about their stories and the pressure they were experiencing in a variety of different ways. 
we chose people from different schools in different areas, different coaches, so that there was kind of some depth and breadth to the to the overall experience here. Yes, I executive produced a season of Friday Night Tykes, <laughs> which which is uh, you know was in Texas, and we shot all throughout Texas. And those were, I feel like it was nine to eleven year olds, and I had some flashbacks, uh, some of the conversations. I mean. Your subject, your subjects were old, a little bit older, but the say, you know, the the coaches and the parents, they all say the same things. They're all pushing them to a point where they're treating them like they're pros, even though they're they're still kids. What was that like to you know to kind of be if making a film in Salt Lake City, kind of be representing the hometown? I think it was different for, for Tony and me, for Tony being Polynesian as a Tongan filmmaker. I think that the being a part of the community, that was, uh, there was a lot of pressure. And I think for both of us in wanting to tell the story in our own, in our own community for in different, different aspects of the community, but in our own community, wanting to be able to, to do justice to the story. Obviously, both of us are very collaborative, immersive filmmakers to begin with. And everyone, you know, was always asking, like, what's, what's the status? What's happening? Where are things at? You know? And we had so many community fundraisers that ultimately failed because we spent so much money putting the events on and <laughs> entertaining people. Then we actually got money back. And I think that also when you're living and working and breathing in the same space in the, in the community that you're, that you're storytelling in, there was a lot of impatience for making a film. So that film took five years, but the, the amount of pressure that we had to get the film out ASAP was pretty profound. Though I will say premiering the film at Sundance in our own hometown, we actually premiered uh, in Salt Lake at the theater and at the, the Grand Theater in Salt Lake was incredibly rewarding and pretty um, awe-inspiring. When you look at now these three films, right? In Football We Trust, The Judge, Belly of the Beast, how do you feel like you're progressing as a filmmaker? For me, it's all about character. And all of those are character-driven narratives. And I just actually came out with a short film that premiered in the New York Times this summer called What You'll Remember, which is about a young family who, after 15 years of struggling with housing instability, and living in their car, secure an apartment in San Francisco on the eve of the pandemic. And it's this beautiful kind of love poem from the parents to their four young children about how home is not a building and they don't want their children to forget where they came from. And uh, the mother who's featured in that film, Elizabeth Herrera, shot everything herself on an iPhone. And as I mentioned, you know, every project is very collaborative, but I think this project specifically provided a, a really unique opportunity to collaborate in a key creative way with a cinematographer who's also featured in the film. And Elizabeth Herrera and I are also turning that into a fiction feature. So that is really the next step in, in taking true stories and documentary storytelling to a different medium, similar medium, but to reach uh, additional audiences. That's great. All right, before we go, can you let everybody know where they can find all of your amazing content? Yeah, thanks, Steve. You can watch In Football We Trust and The Judge on Amazon Prime. Belly of the Beast will be coming out soon in a wide digital release. So follow us uh, on social, Instagram and Facebook at Belly of the Beast Film, on Twitter at BOTB Film, 
or subscribe to our newsletter, which is uh, accessible via our website, bellyofthebeastfilm.com. And What You'll Remember is available on the New York Times website in the opinion docs or op docs and we'll be premiering on Argo, a new platform, a new streaming platform for films. Erica, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me, Steve. That's gonna do it for another episode of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network. For everyone listening, please remember to subscribe, download, and rate the show with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it at believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. Follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you have a question or a suggestion, send them to no script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.